This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Their name is Sarah Glover. Hi, Sarah. Hello. And they are a recently registered psychologist. Congratulations, Sarah. How recent is it? Um, what is the, what is it today? It's the start of May. So probably like the last month, I think it was about a month ago now. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah. And they are, like I said, a recently registered psychologist working in private practice, and they are featuring today as our guest on our listener story episode. These episodes are where I interview a guest who wants to share with us their real in-the-trenches story about what their registration journey was like, what they've picked up along the way, and what they want other people to know about this early stage of their career. And we're really excited to have you, Sarah. Thank you so much. And thanks so much as well for um, providing us this platform to share, share our experiences as well. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. So let's start off with... I've got a little emoji here, which is a celebratory one, but I think that's very presumptuous of me because I've got the question, what does it mean for you to get your registration? Um, what does it mean for you? Is it celebratory or is it overwhelming? Yes, no, it definitely definitely is celebratory. Um, I think in the final few weeks, you know, getting finalizing my case reports and making sure all my logbooks are all sorted and, and doing all of those things you have to do to submit, it definitely felt overwhelming. And I was like, oh, more paperwork. But um, once that email finally came, came through, it was definitely celebratory. So yeah, it's been, it's been really exciting. And I think, um, you kind of can lose sight of it, how, how monumental it is, um, on the journey, finally getting to this point. So yeah, it's been, it's been really exciting. That's so cool. And you did the four plus two pathway. Is that right? Yes, I did. Yeah. So how long did it take you from starting off applying to the four plus two pathway to now? I actually finished right on the two year mark, which Whoa. I know is, yeah, is incredible. And I definitely like, don't feel, no one should feel any pressure to do that because I don't know how I did get it all in under that, um, that time frame. but yeah, it was, so I did both, I did um, both years of my internship in private practice. So. Wow. That's incredible because I'm not too 100% sure about the hours for the four plus two, but isn't it 3000 hours of practice? And then, uh, I think like a hundred hours of supervision. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was really fortunate in my first workplace. So I've had two different, worked in two different private practices, but I was really fortunate in my first workplace to have, supervision as part of my employment and so I caught up with my supervisor every single week and so I definitely had plenty of supervision hours I think we know each other better than anyone else at this point because you <laughs> spend so, so much time together every single week but yeah it is a, it is a lot of hours I think you're right it's about 3,000 hours of, of professional practice so it's a lot wow wow crap that's that's so much congratulations again incredible we're going to unpack today, listeners, what Sarah's journey towards registration was like. And Sarah's got some really great insights into the mindset that I think will be really relatable to everyone and what they're currently struggling with now. So we're really grateful in advance, Sarah, for your vulnerability. So let's have a look 
maybe just tell us generally what prompted you to do the four plus two pathway? So to be honest, I think I thought it was the only pathway available. Um, I'm sure as is the experience of a lot of people, you kind of sign up to like a bachelor of psychology or a bachelor of psychological science. And you think you get to the end and you just get given your job. (laughs) Yes. You just just know, know everything you're supposed to know, but um, no, it probably wasn't until I got to, I ended up doing a graduate diploma at the end of my, um, undergrad. So that was my fourth year. Um, and then after that, I kind of thought, um, that the only pathway was like to do a clinical master's or go and do the four plus two. I didn't really know that there were other options and I'm from North Queensland. So I went to James Cook university and I don't, they may now, but at the time they didn't offer the five plus the five plus one. So okay, that, yeah. that fifth year option, so I, to be, like for me, I really didn't know that it existed. Um, and you hear all the time that clinical masters are incredibly hard to get into. And I really struggled in my thesis. Um, now I know that's because I have ADHD. And so it was, uh, it was probably, you know, um, very overwhelming for me, yep. not knowing that at the time, mm. but um, so my academics went, went up there. And so I, the advice even from, Um, the uni staff at the time was that it wasn't worth applying for a master's. So yeah, I just felt like four plus two was the only way. And that was, yeah, that was why I applied for it. Wow. So you saying that even people who like course conveners were saying to you, perhaps don't apply for the master's. Yeah. They, yeah. I mean, they said you can apply, but like, it's very competitive. And I think most people, like lots of people from all around Australia apply for the masters because there are so little positions available. And so even, um, you know, even if everyone from my cohort of of fourth years applied, only a certain select few would get in and there's no guarantee that it could be any of us anyway, given that there's, you know, people from all over Australia trying to apply for a clinical masters. So Mm. the advice was, look, you can apply, but if not, um, but you know, you're probably better off doing the four plus two pathway and finding a job. And the other thing is I've supported myself financially since, since I finished high school, pretty much. So I did have, I did have support from my parents, um, a little bit, but probably for the past, I'm 26 now. So probably since I was 19, I moved to Townsville for my uni degree and I supported myself pretty much the whole way since then. So the idea of working and I'll be at a a intern salary, um, (laughs) I still, to be able to support myself financially, I didn't have that luxury of of being able to do a clinical master's and do that workload. Yeah. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about as well, because when you do clinical master's, your internships are mostly unpaid. Some people do have the opportunity through organizing it to get paid, but it's completely independent of the university. And so people who don't have that luxury, yeah, they need to support themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a tricky thing to rely on as well, right? Is that, you know, you maybe you won't be able to get paid for your, your internships yeah, in, in your master's, but yeah, maybe just <laughs> hopefully you do. Yeah. But yeah, that's a tricky thing. And, you know, I know that there are, people who are fortunate enough that have, you know, supportive partners or families that can afford to um, have them not work and focus on their studies. But for me, I was really, I I know it's horrible to say, but during COVID, that's when I did my thesis. And um, without the extra support of the government at the time, like I would not have been able to survive because 
I, the pressure of having to work and, and write that big assignment, I could not have done it. So Yeah, no, I think it's... The financial pressure is huge. It's real. The struggle is real. Yeah, definitely. And so you had a desire to be a psychologist and you were like, okay, there's the competitive master's programs or the four plus two, and I need to support myself as well financially. And so you pursued the four plus two and you mentioned that it was both at private practice. I've heard that it's really difficult to get placements at private practice. How did you find that opportunity? So I probably interviewed for like... I want to say I applied for maybe 20 positions and interviewed for maybe half of them. Wow. Um, so it was not, it was not easy. Yeah. <laughs> I was just any provisional like job ad on seek I applied for. Um, and I, at the time I had decided for me personally, I was kind of ready for a bit of a change in location as well. So I was happy to move down to Brisbane. So I live in Brisbane now. So I was looking for positions um, sort of in the different areas of Queensland. Um, so looking for some in Townsville, but um, Southeast Queensland as well, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast and Brisbane. Um, and I ended up finding one in Brisbane, which was um, amazing, but it probably took me, I didn't move down until four months after, like until April. So four months after I finished uni. So it probably took a good, yeah, five months um, post finishing the thesis to to find a role and start in it. Wow. I can imagine that that would have been pretty difficult emotionally to manage with the rejections and not getting any responses and then interviewing and not getting through. How did you cope with that? Oh, it was so long ago now. I feel like I have not thought about that for a long time. But um, You're like, Bronwyn, that's in a repressed box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't opened that box yet. <laughs> so, I mean, I was still working in retail at the time and then I had actually been offered a really unique position um, for a family, a wonderful family um, that was local that had a, a son with ASD. Um, and they wanted me to work with him. I guess they were in a really privileged position as well to be able to afford to have someone um, facilitate his homeschooling. So I did that for probably about half a term before I got my provisional internship and moved um, to Brisbane. But that was a really, I guess it was a positive opportunity for me to get some of that kind of real life experience of what it's like being in a, a home environment with a child with ASD and seeing how that works for their family and how they navigate some of those challenges and how the therapies can impact him as well. But I also felt like I knew nothing. Like his mum was always saying, I hope you're doing some psychology with him. And I was like, I have no idea what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, we are doing, we are paying, we are doing school like you paid me for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, as long as it's clear to them that it's like, yeah, you're actually paying me for this. So psychology is not guaranteed here. Yeah, no, no. I was like, no, I do not have that training yet because you really don't learn a lot of therapy stuff in your undergrad. No. I mean, like for me, it was none at all. How was it for you? Yeah, pretty much the same. I think um, a tiny little bit of kind of role play stuff in my fourth year, but that was it. Yeah. And then you're in the big bad world. Yeah. Honestly, I remember my first day on the job as a provisional and my first day seeing clients, especially, I was just like, so how do you do an intake? Like, what am I supposed to say to them? And then, and then I came out of that session being like, and now what do I do next? Yes. Like, I do not know what to do. Yeah, yeah totally me. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. No, yeah. it's, it'd be like that. Um, yeah. So 
Sarah, you got into the, you moved to Brisbane um, and then you went into the private practice internship and then you did 3,000 hours of psychology practice. I'm curious if we can move along to what you have picked up along the way during this time over the past two years. I know that's a big question. Yes, there's lots and lots of things, um, probably too many to fit all in one episode. But <laughs> Where would you like to start? I guess something that I have obviously just getting my registration recently in the last month, I've been reflecting on the journey so far. And I think a big thing that I have noticed that I still struggle with now is feeling that sort of sense of responsibility that I have to fix the clients, that it's all on on me personally to fix them. And I think that came from as well, feeling really isolated in, in my role. And I think it's just kind of the nature of our profession sometimes that, you know, it's, it's us with the client. There's not, you know, our supervisor's not necessarily holding our hand the whole way. They're not there. It's not a team of people all sitting together and helping this one client. It's you and them. And yes, we're working together collaboratively with them, but at the end of the day, we're still leading the session. Right. Yeah. And, um, I think that left me feeling like I'm the only one sometimes in their life that can help them. Um, they might come in for sort of one issue, but tell me this whole trauma background that they haven't really acknowledged yet. And I'm like, oh, wow, you know, you have to unpack that. And they don't even kind of recognize how meaningful some of their own personal histories have been. And then I, I would feel that sort of overwhelming me as well, that this was, it was all my responsibility. Yeah. That's what I get the sense of that. It's like when you, when you feel like it's all on you to fix the client, it feels overwhelming. And then I totally relate to you on that. They sometimes bring personal history and they're like, oh no, this thing happened. And you're like, that's bad. Yeah. That's not great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, we should not be laughing about that. Yeah. Like I get that we're using, we're using that to cope and I get it, but yeah. it is not good. Yeah. This is not good. So that leaves you with that sense of overwhelm. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, but I think something that I have found helpful to navigate that is, um, is really jumping in and learning those different, the different therapies. So finding something that works for me that I feel like I can explain really confidently to the client and remembering that I'm giving them the tools. I'm not holding all of this for them. Yeah. I was thinking that as well, because if you, if you view it that way, it's like, it's all on us and it really, sometimes it is. Um, honestly, it's like, like you say, we're in the room with the client. Um, we are the ones doing the treatment plans. We are the ones working with them. We can go see a supervisor, but ultimately they're not I guess, usually in the room with us. But when we think of it that way, that it's our responsibility to fix them, yeah, it, it does feel overwhelming. So have you got any other ways that now, now you view our role working with clients? Yeah, I think my, I, I recently talked about this with my supervisor and she gave me a really great analogy about even just using something as simple as like a pen, right? And so we're all going around carrying our own pens. And then when we go into the therapy room, what we're doing is putting our our pen down and leaving it at the door or outside of the door sometimes and we're bringing them into our room and they're giving us our their pen but we're we're sharing the pen so we're putting it down together in the middle um and we're both holding that pen mm. right so it's not just me holding all of that stuff for the the hour um and it's not them just throwing the pen at me it's it's us holding it together and sharing that space together 
Um, but then at the end of the session, me giving the pen back to them, right, and saying, okay, here's that stuff back. You go away and, and work on what you can work on. And then when we come back in together, we'll do that again. Um, and then picking up my own pen. Yeah. Um, so I felt like that was a really good analogy for me. And then even something I might need to physically do with some of those clients that I might struggle with is have sort of something as a bit of a symbol to, to help me remember that it's not me who has to hold all of this for them, that I'm helping them hold it. And because that's a really important part of the therapy process for them, right? Because if I take it all on board, like it's my responsibility to fix them. And I maybe don't give them the strategies because I'm just so busy listening to their story or empathizing with them. And we're not sort of working on how they can make those changes. Um, it takes away from the client's opportunity to help themselves. And that's part of it is that they need to practice those things and make their own improvements so that they gain confidence in that that area as well. Yeah, it can be a great sense of achievement for clients to be able to say, hey, I tried something out of session and it worked really well and to leave that ball yeah. in their court so that they can do that um, rather than us kind of helicoptering. Is that a word? I don't know. I just made it a word. Um, it's, no, it's a good word. Okay, yep. thank you. Yes, us helicoptering yeah. <laughs> over them. And yeah, I guess like you say, yeah, taking that away from them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, even if they go away and try something and it doesn't work, like yeah. that's, it's, it's like, okay, great, you tried it. Like now we can, we can figure out why it didn't work. Or we can find a new thing. Um, but I think when I was feeling like it was all my responsibility, they'd be like, oh, it didn't work. And I'd be like, oh, fuck, well, I don't know. Like, yeah, exactly. I, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I guess maybe this touches on another thing as well is that sometimes clients come to us with that impression of that's how therapy is. So they're like, I just come here and you fix me right. And as early career psychologists, we can be like, oh, maybe that is the way that therapy is supposed to work. So sometimes we can pick up on that as well. I know that certainly happened with me. And I was like, crap, I do need to fix you. But it's like, just because clients come in with that understanding doesn't mean that that's necessarily the right frame of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with that. And I feel like that's probably part of that transference there as well, but I can even relate to that as a client on the other side of it, who has seen my own psychologist at different times. You do, you do almost have that sense of you want to go to this person and they're just going to tell you some specific thing. That's just going to magically fix everything. Yeah. And you're going to feel so much better. Um, so I understand that as well, that feeling from the client side of feeling like you're, you're just like hopeful that this person is just going to miraculously fix you. But I think that is a really important, yeah, part of that, even early stages of therapy, right. Is recognizing for both the clinician and the client that it's, it's not either one's responsibility. It's that we have to do something we both play our own parts, right? Yeah. And it's managing that disappointment as well. Cause yeah, like hearing you say that yeah. I tap into my own self yeah. as a client and I'm like, yeah, I just want them to tell me the secret of life and they've got it right. And I just pay 200 bucks yeah. and then I can have it. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's managing that disappointment to be like, oh crap, like you don't have the secret to what my problem is and I have to work as well. Well, that sucks, but okay. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's like you don't, that is not what you want to hear when you're starting in therapy. It's yeah. like, oh, I have to do something. Yeah. Like, I don't want to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but is that something that you're still um, feeling a lot right now? Um, it's something that I've just recently kind of worked through. And I think now knowing for myself that it's um, something that, you know, it could be maybe a bit of a symptom of burnout for me is when I noticed ah. that I 
I start to feel that way about clients and that I am taking it on, on personally. I think I am working personally as well on being a little bit more flexible. And so recently I just went through, um, I guess after getting that registration and, you know, when you kind of, you know, when you are kind of working really, really hard and then you go on holidays and you get sick, I think I, I experienced something really similar to that with finishing the registration where I was like, just had my eyes set on this goal and then I achieved it. And I was just like, hit a wall. So just sort of been through and come out the other side of that um, sort of experience for myself. Um, And that's something I really reflected on as well is that, okay, it's, you know, just because I've overcome this once before, doesn't mean it's not going to it's, it's never coming up again, but this for me might be something that, that does come up from time to time. And if I'm experiencing it more often than I usually do that, it might mean that I need to take some time out for myself and figure out why this is coming up for me again, that I feel like I'm the only one who's responsible for fixing the client and how can I help myself to, I guess, navigate that again. Wow. Excellent insights. It's so good working out our own personal burnout signs and symptoms. Definitely, because I think it's so different for everyone. And I think I as well, this wasn't something we had planned to talk about, but I as well had this idea in my head that I had to be, because I was a psychologist, I had to be totally healed to help other people. And that I couldn't experience burnout because no, no, I have done all of the things to not Uh, be burnt out. I'm doing the self-care. I'm doing all of the things. I've been through this stuff before, so I don't need to work on it again. But no, it's accepting that, okay, whatever comes up is okay. If you're feeling it, it's important to feel it. Um, Mm. We can't just do the control thing, right? And try to control those feelings. Yeah. So I think that's something that I recently acknowledged was that it's okay. It's okay to feel burnt out. doesn't mean I failed as a psychologist. I don't have to be totally healed as an individual before I can be the healer. Um, It's more so about me doing that healing work ongoing, right? So that I can be there for clients. Mm, I'm so glad you voiced that because yeah, I feel like nobody says it to us explicitly, I would hope, but you know, we just pick up this. I must be healed to be able to be a good psychologist. And if I struggle, it means I have failed. And that is so poisonous. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. Whereas like in reality, it's like mental health is not a state of getting there and then you're always mentally healthy. It's like, it is an ongoing thing. Yes, that's yeah. something I say to clients all the time and something I had to recognize for myself yeah. as well that it's like, okay, the point of mental health is not the absence of mental illness or yeah. like bad mental health. It's like, no, the point is that we're going to feel things and it's important to feel them. Yeah, yeah, and totally. What we do, yeah, what we do next is what's important. It's not wishing away these negative emotions and then once we deal with them once, they never come back. I feel like that's a top therapist. Yeah, it's a top therapist blind spot, I reckon, because it's like I love the um, disconnect between it's like we tell things to clients and then it's like, could that thing apply to me? (laughs) Yeah, Um, absolutely right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then when I go through stuff, I'm like, oh, this is what clients must feel like going through my own own feelings I'm like that's right this is hard and yes okay yeah (laughs) no totally um and yeah thank you again for voicing that I think that's a really important one and just something that can also contribute to our sense of burnout even so it's like we're trying not so hard not to burn out because we're trying not to struggle but the struggle uh internalize that struggle can also lead us to burnout absolutely and I think it comes down to that acceptance right of those emotions and I had this rule this rule in my 
head that I, I couldn't be burnt out and that I was doing all of the things to prevent it. But really, that's not what it's about. It's about accepting if I am needing a break, then that's okay. Um, and yeah, I don't have to be perfect and have it all together all of the time. Amen. I'm allowed to feel that feel those feelings yes, yes. <laughs> yeah you heard it heard it here first listeners if you are struggling you're still a good therapist okay something else I wanted to lean into Sarah is this idea that early career psychologists are very impressionable so I would agree with that I think they're very vulnerable we're just trying to figure out what the hell is going on what we need to do what being a professional looks like what it doesn't so can you tell us a bit about how being so impressionable affected you during your registration journey I think especially at the start, I would sort of pick up, um, and again, I think this speaks back to my my other ideas of having to be perfect all of the time, but I would pick up things that people would say like, oh no, don't do this therapy because it's not that good or do this other therapy, this is great or, um, oh, you know, this should be handled this specific way. And I think I would take those things almost as, again, adding them to my little collection of rules and they would kind of, yeah, it would make me kind of feel really stuck, really boxed in. Um, And I think I, it then took me time to probably unpack some of those and recognize that once I started learning about this specific therapy, I realized, oh, actually, this is really helpful for me to understand this in this certain way. And obviously, a lot of cognitive therapies kind of overlap, or they all kind of have similar aspects. But using different ones might feel better to you as an individual. And that means that it's probably more likely to help your clients as well, because it really resonates with you and the way that you describe things um, and can teach things to clients. Yeah. I think it took me a while to sort of realize that, oh, I probably shouldn't listen to what people say and take it as like the absolute Bible truth, um, but maybe get get recommendations from lots of different people or if people are telling me oh don't do this kind of therapy I should ask well why is that and why don't they like it because I think what works for one person or um, one therapist might not work for another and that's okay. No really wise words and I really like that idea of being curious and asking people like why don't you like that therapy or why does that therapy work for you because sometimes we have kind of I feel like in our profession we have communicated biases against things so the example that I can think of on the spot is that I've had so many times practitioners say I hate the K10 And the K10 is a questionnaire for distress. And I used to use it for a few years and now I stopped using it. But the reason I don't like the K10 is because it has an item on there that says, I have felt tired for no good reason. And every time I give it to a client without fail, they will ask me a question about it. So when you're doing it like 10 times a day, I'm like, I just don't want to explain like that. Yes, you have a good reason. Yes, it's a poorly worded item. Um, So then I stopped using it. But like sometimes when you ask people why they don't like using certain tools or why they don't like using certain therapies, um, it's difficult for them to get an answer. And it's just like, oh, it's because my peers kind of said it was bad. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's a really good example, right? Whereas if there was a, an early career psych or someone who is just starting out, that is really impressionable. And, and they hear you say, oh, I don't like using the K10. And they just think, oh, okay, the K10 is bad. I yeah, won't exactly. use it. Yeah. 
but then you need but then you need to know it for the exam it's on yeah, the exam exactly. like it is a measure it is a measure yeah um and then you know having that asking why okay well why don't you like it and then to hear that it's for you it's just a personal preference yeah. it's not that <laughs> it's, not it's that a, it's a bad, bad questionnaire measure yeah 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 <laughs> it's just that like you're sick of clients asking the same exactly. question which I totally get yeah and then yeah and then that gives context as well for why why you might or might not use it which yeah. is totally valid as well. Yeah. And, um, I agree. Like when I was doing, when I was starting out and doing my provisional, I would literally parrot what my supervisor would say. So I'd say them, I did a lot of group therapy in my provisional training and I would see what my supervisor would say to clients and it would work beautifully for them. And I would try and replicate it and say exactly the same thing. And then it would be a complete flop. And I'd be like, why doesn't this work for me? And then I had to realize that, yeah, they have a different style and way of doing things that works for them at that time and I will have to develop my own way of doing things which is terrifying in itself I feel like I did the exact same thing especially at the start because you just have no idea what you're saying and you just have no confidence in what you're saying as well this is the first time I am explaining the CBT triangle to you um and I remember yet trying to use analogies that I just could not remember but when my supervisor said it it sounded amazing and so I, yeah, I'd be like, oh, no, I don't get it. I do not get that. Never mind. We'll try something else. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I really like your recommendation that, okay, be curious and questioning about why people recommend different things, but remember that you can explore different therapies that your supervisor might not enjoy or mesh well with their work, but it might work for you. Yeah, absolutely. And not getting, not necessarily feeling like you have to get all of your advice from the one person. that you can explore other other supervisors or or talk to other people about if they've had success using those therapies or measures or whatever it is, um, because they other people might have had a different experience. Totally, yeah. And then we can all learn as well. Like if somebody is delivering the K10 in a way where they don't get asked that question that I get asked every time, then I would love to hear it. And then, you know, yeah, so we can yeah. all learn from each other. <laughs> I want to ask you about the idea that learning different therapies is really hard. I know you've touched on this a little bit, but can you just speak to us about this? Yes, I think this is something that I wished I knew before starting my internship is that I guess this kind of this does touch on what we just sort of spoke about when, you know, you try to do something that someone else has done or your supervisor has explained to you and to you it just doesn't it doesn't really work. Like I felt, you know, you feel like you can't communicate it the same way that someone else did. Um, And I think for me to be able to feel confident in my sessions with clients, I felt like I needed to really, really understand these therapies for myself, which is not an easy thing. Like you almost, it's almost like you're doing the therapy on yourself to then be able to teach it to somebody else. And it can bring up a lot of stuff for you as an individual. Like I think for me, it, without realizing it at the time, um, there was so much personal growth because there was, you know, once I'm learning about cognitive distortions, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm doing the mind reading thing. And then I'd catch myself doing it all the time. And you kind of feel like a bit, yeah, I'm learning this with my clients, which can be really, really hard as an individual who is also then being a therapist to someone else. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I just want to echo how hard it is to learn different therapies and I've got a, I've been planning this episode for a while, but I've been wanting to do an episode on the expectation that you learn like 10 billion different therapies as an early career psychologist. And it's like learn ACT, CBT, DBT, 
and all the other acronyms immediately. But I really just want to pause and acknowledge how hard it is to even learn one therapy. And it's for the reasons that you say as well, Sarah. It's like you to really understand and teach a therapy to a client and tailor it to them. It is like you have to do it on yourself first as well. Yeah, you have to really know it inside and out. Yeah. Right? And especially with some of those those therapies that are a little bit more flexible, like something like ACT where um, you, there's not a set treatment plan necessarily. You can just sort of, it's not like we're doing exposure therapy and it's very step-by-step. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit more, you can pick up, pull from all different kind of parts of the therapy and deliver that to a client. But being flexible like that means you have to know it inside and out. And that is not not easy. Yeah, it's so not easy because clients ask you questions as well in session. And like, if you explain CBT, they'll be like, why this? And you'll be like, uh, I don't know. Um, or you'll just yeah. try and like yeah. make something up. But it's being able to have that fluency really does help. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you're just sitting there staring at the textbook or like, you know, hoping that telepathically the answer will arrive in your in your brain so you can tell, tell the client. Yeah. Yeah. Just FYI to any listeners, like I have brought like textbooks into sessions with clients and I'm like, this is the real deal. This is the textbook. We're going to have a look through this. I'm going to try and explain it to you. So, and it's actually worked out really well because clients have appreciated that I'm getting the information from the source and then we're talking it through. So just an FYI to listeners that you can do that. Yeah, definitely. I think it comes down to that informed consent with clients as well, right? Letting, like asking them, hey, is it okay if we learn this together? Like I'm going to have the, the manual here. And if I get stuck, we are going to like, we're going to draw on this if we need it. Um, and I think that makes them feel that so much more comfortable with that as well. But you can answer their questions. Yeah. Or it can be like, would you prefer if I look this up and then I get back to you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Have you found anything has helped with learning the different therapies? I sort of to what you were saying before, you know, that expect expectation, acknowledging that for me, I think it was probably an expectation I put on myself that I was like, I must know everything immediately before I I start doing therapy, but um, that it takes time. Yeah. Just giving taking some of that pressure off myself that, you know, one at a time is good. Start with one and then learn the next one. And that you don't have to necessarily be an expert in all of them, but having a good base of understanding is really, really helpful. And then if you do need to draw into one a little bit more, because that's what you're using with a client. And so you need to know it a little bit more thoroughly. That's okay as well. And there'll be time for that. But I think I definitely put a lot of that pressure on myself from those expectations of learn all of these different skills um, and strategies to deliver to clients. It's, it's overwhelming. So yeah, I think that's the main thing that I have probably learned is that it's okay that it takes time. Yeah. No, that's really nice. And it's so nice for us therapists who are usually either self-sacrificers or perfectionists or both to be able to hear that, that it's okay to take time with this. Yeah, definitely. I think we definitely do put that pressure on ourselves, especially from those those perspectives of that perfectionism or that self-sacrificing that. Again, yeah, we need to know it all so that we can tell it to our clients, but it can, you know, we can take it piece by piece and that's okay. Maybe this comes into the comparison as well, because comparison to other provisionals can be something that we just do automatically and other professions. And one of the things we can compare is like, oh, they seem to be learning the therapy really fast or like they already know how to do it. I'm just curious to know for you, Sarah, what kind of stuff were you comparing yourself to? 
Oh, I think definitely like, you know, going into a workplace, I was super, super green. So I had never done, apart from, you know, that short little stint that I did working with a a child where it wasn't even a psychology role, really. I wasn't learning any therapies. I didn't know the first thing about actually doing therapy with clients, which I know sounds like a really odd thing to, to say or to think it's like, and you don't, it's not like you see it anywhere. Like I guess doing a job like an electrician, like you kind of have a general idea of what they do, you know, that they do these things or like a hairdresser. We've all had our hair cut. So we know, we know what they do. Whereas unless you've been to therapy yourself, you have no idea what therapists do. And so I was looking at, you know, my colleagues and people around me who were either had come from other maybe counsellor roles and were starting their their provisional internship or were already fully-fledged psychologists. And I was thinking like, oh, my gosh, you already know all of the staff and I don't know, I don't even know how to do an intake. Like I don't even know how to explain CBT to a client yet. Like what does that even mean? And I don't, I'm not sure I get it yet. And so I was comparing myself to other provisionals and how how they're going which I think can definitely make you feel like you're you're struggling or you're behind but even sort of that comparison to not being in a master's as well feeling like or should I be wanting to be in a master's as was something else that I I felt sort of that comparison as well about should I you know there's so many people that are working to get into it and it might it would be really good learning for me Um, And I'd feel this pressure, oh, maybe I should be applying, but I actually didn't want it. And that was okay. Yeah. So yeah, I think the takeaway from that is probably don't compare yourself. Um, (laughs) I know it's easier, easier said than done, but taking your own path and your own journey is totally okay. It doesn't have to be done in a certain amount of time. It doesn't, you don't have to put the pressure on yourself to get your case reports done early or anything like that. Yeah. And it's just really, uh, uh, it's a mindset that really we always lose. It's like when we compare, very rarely do we compare in a way where we are coming out on top. So it's usually a thought spiral where we're just like, I suck. I'm inadequate. Uh, guess I'll just not be a psychologist anymore. Okay. Bye. Oh, absolutely. I think I definitely at the six month mark was like, I think I picked the wrong career. Like this is not for me. Um, what am I doing here? And the funny thing about comparison as well is that, you know, we all do it and people are probably comparing themselves to, to you or to us. Right. And we, we all pick out the, the good things about other people and say, why aren't I like that? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure that we all feel that way as well. And so, and recognizing the good things that we are doing. And we also, I guess, maybe if we're comparing ourselves in that way, we fail to appreciate that we can learn from the other people around us. I know when, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you walked out of your first session and you were like, okay, what's next? Um, I had that and I was so grateful to have colleagues around me who were like, okay, here's a succession plan. And I was like, okay, got it. Um, otherwise I would have just been completely lost. and I would have hated it if we were at the same stage already. And I'd be like, what do we do? Yes, no, absolutely. I was so grateful to have sites around me and I was thinking that as well that it's sort of that there's the two sides of it right where I was kind of like oh everyone around me is like knows so much more and I'm not as good as them 
But then the other side of that was that I was so lucky to have all this support and could learn from these people and be like, okay, great. So what do I do next? And um, lots of different people to draw experiences from and session ideas and activities. And so that was, that was really helpful as well. But it's so, it's so automatic that we do that. And it's really like, we're just trying so hard in this pathway. We just want to be good psychologists. So it's really understandable why we're comparing and we just want to already be there. But I feel like it comes back to your previous takeaway, which is that like, look, everybody's in their own journey. Everybody's taking their own time. It's okay to take your time. I'm really interested in this topic of isolation as well, because I feel like, okay, I'm just going to read out to listeners what I heard from you, which is that whilst our work is collaborative with clients, there's still a level of not being our complete self in the therapy space as the therapy is for the client, not for us. So we have to show up with a certain level of professionalism. Um, And yeah, I think that's a really aspect and something I've actually been reflecting on. It's like we sign up to have this very simultaneously emotionally psychologically like quite intimate relationship with our clients but simultaneously quite distant relationship quite professional relationship and I just wondered if that's something that you've thought about as well I am I'm quite a social butterfly and I'm a great networker and so um the psychologist role is actually really really challenging for me in that regard personally and where I meet these amazing people who I cannot be friends with I cannot work with outside of the therapy room I can't really share any of you know too in depth of my personal interests or personal experiences that might really relate to them um of course we can you know do some gentle self-disclosure where is appropriate but I can't you know I can't we can't have that sort of intimate relationship from our side with them um we're really just there as a as a reflection and to support them so it's definitely something that I have noticed is is a tough part of our job yeah I agree and it's like other people we'd come home and we'd be like we're exhausted and it's from seeing other people all day and having that mental and emotional energy expended but then we can still feel quite isolated and that might shock like our partners or families yeah absolutely and I think because it's really that side of it where we are not being our total complete selves in the therapy space and I listening to your podcast episodes that um, you've done on emotional labor with the, the research on that when I heard those episodes I was like obsessed and I was like telling everyone oh my gosh have you heard about emotional labor it's this amazing con- this amazing concept that explains this and I totally totally resonate with it like it just made so much sense for me because I also I know a lot of the, re- the research on emotional labor has been done in retail and that's what I did all through uni oh wow and I totally yeah. yeah yeah so I worked in retail for like 10 years and so I totally understand that perspective of even in that setting where you're like I've got to show up and it doesn't matter what is going on in my personal life, but I've got to sell these people, these clothes right now. And that's the most important thing. Um, And then even more so in the therapy room, right, where someone's telling you a story and you've, you're thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner later that night. And then you're like, Oh oh shit, no, don't worry about that. We're focusing on this. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a real performative (laughs) aspect to doing retail work and doing therapy. Yeah. I think recognizing that is so important, isn't it? Mm, Absolutely. And I'm just wondering how you've managed that sense of isolation. Do you feel like having recognized that isolation is a big thing and that you're a social butterfly? um, What's the next step for you? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because obviously the emotional and the, you know, the collaborative and people kind of work with 
with clients because it's the entire job. Um, so it's really important. But making sure that I do find time to have those social interactions in my personal life, um, but that I'm also managing my work so I'm not so exhausted that I, I then can't go and spend time with my friends after work or with my partner or something like that because I think it's it's easy to sort of experience that right where we're talking to clients we might see six people in a day um, and I would always say you know especially when you're seeing kids and you might speak to the mom and the dad I'm like I literally just spoke to like four people in an hour yes and <laughs> about really intense things yeah um, and then yeah so you might get to the end of the day especially someone who's a therapist who's working with kids um, and families all the time you might speak to like 20 different people so of course, at the end of the day, you're like, nobody talked to me. I need 10 minutes to myself, at least like, yeah. I'm exhausted. You then don't have that energy to have the social and personal emotional connection with people who are important to you. And so, yeah, managing that, I think is super important. So true. Yeah. <laughs> I can only like agree yeah. very hard. I think, yeah, it just, the, the isolation is just really it's really there in our work and it's so important to make sure, like you say, that A, you don't burn out, but B, you've got, I guess, friends and obviously people outside of clients who you can have that emotional connection with. Yeah, yeah. And I think even things as simple as having your lunch times with your colleagues, like yeah. I know when I'm feeling really, really stressed or exhausted from talking to people you sort of feel that isolation, right? That's the natural feeling is that you, you're so tired or you're feeling that sort of fatigue. You're like, okay, I just want to sit in my room and like zen for like 20 minutes, which is fine, but also some gentle social interaction could actually be really important mm. so that you're not all, all by yourself. Yeah, totally. Mm. So Sarah, I reckon we're coming up towards the end of the podcast. The question I want to ask you maybe to kind of finish up with Sarah is what's next for you? So are you going to continue on in private practice or where do you see yourself going? I am not sort of sure what's next. I think I would like to find some other ways that I can do some different things with my, my registration now. Um, I love doing private practice. I love doing my one-on-one -on -one therapy, but um, I think it is quite rare for people to do their internship all in one area. And so I'm definitely excited to look at what sort of opportunities there are for me to, to try something new in the field of psychology and how I can sort of supplement my work a little bit as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the podcast. I think we've all benefited from hearing your story as well as just the insights that you've gained along the way. I think, like I said at the start, they're hugely relatable for anyone who's listening and so many things that we need to all unpack with the rules that we've developed about being perfect and being able to fix clients. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. No worries. My pleasure. Well, thank you, mental workers, for listening. Have a good one and catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press follow on your podcast listening app. If you want to show us some love, consider sharing the episode with a friend or giving us a five-star rating and review in your podcast app. If you want to show us some extra love, join our Patreon for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash mentalworkpodcast. This really helps to keep the podcast alive. Want to keep the conversation going? Have a cool idea for an episode or just want to say hi? 
Send me an email or join the Facebook page by clicking on the links in the show description. See you next time.